So we're doing this right now in DC. It's hard to talk about the future and the economics when you have diplomats and you're in the middle of negotiations, all these issues. But Espen teed it up the right way. First of all, we're doing this right now in Washington rather than town halls where we need to be on the island, I agree, because we need to keep this issue on the agenda here as we go through our own transition. Um, and frankly, I think that's one of the most important things that's happened with Espen's visit. Um, to have the State Department out sending the signal back to the island, the United States is going to re remain a consistent actor in supporting this is important. Um, and so if people are going to vote yes, they need to understand the benefits that will come from that. So we want to be able to get into the issue of the economics and the economy, growth. What are the incentives to do this? So we've got an incredible group of, of folks that can actually talk about this. Um, I'm joined today by Dr. Ra Rachel Don Elkin, the mission chief for Cyprus and Switzerland at the IMF. Um, John Heikweder, who's with us as the founder and executive director, of course, of One Cyprus Now. And David Bonanno, thank you very much for being with us, the managing director of Third Point, uh, who's with primary responsible for the Hellenic, responsibility for the Hellenic Recovery Fund. Um, Dr. Van Elken is leading the development of the IMF's plans to help finance uh, a Cyprus settlement. John has recently formed a, a business alliance that some of you know about that's focused on Cyprus's economic development and a post-unification environment and has a vision for how the private sector can play this vital role. And Mr. Bonanno is directing the third uh, point's uh, investments in the region. Um, so to get, get this part of the conversation started, because you've got to have a case. What are people voting for? What's on the other side? What, what can come to create the political incentive so that, as Espen said, people don't eat flags, they eat food. How does this offer a pathway forward that people would want to stand behind what the negotiators will come out with? Um, so get us started and to bridge uh, from our first conversation, I want to ask uh, each of you first, you know, how do you deliver win-win growth outcomes for both the Turkish Cypriot and the Greek Cypriot, Cypriot communities on a reunified island? And, and Rachel, let's start with you. Um, it's the day after the settlement. The Cypriots have a unified island. Where does the economy stand? What's the economy need? And how do the IFIs actually come in and play an effective role? Okay. So, in fact, I hope that they start well before day one of reunification. I think this is very valuable time now, leading up to the reunification, leading up to the settlement, and then post-settlement uh, up until the referendum. This is time that should not be wasted because a lot does need to be done in terms of establishing institutions, uh, unifying uh, legal frameworks, uh, many different aspects that, that where preparation is needed so that on day one, uh, one does not start with a vacuum. Uh, and I think, you know, ensuring continuity will be essential. Um, and making sure that the early stages of reunification go well, I think will, is critical for setting the tone for what happens well after the initial days. So if things go off on the right foot, it will be very important for and, and, uh, and set a good precedent for, for the future. Um, so in terms of what the um, IFIs, well, I can speak to what the, um, the IMF is doing. Uh, our role is uh, at the moment to provide technical assistance on uh, aspects of the economy. So this involves uh, setting the right institutions at the, f at the fiscal level. There's issues of fiscal federalism. <coughs> 
what functions should be delegated to the individual constituencies, what should be at the, at the federal level. Uh, there are issues about um, macroeconomic statistics. There's uh, the banking sector, ensuring a sound and viable banking sector that can support economic growth going forward. Uh, there's a multitude of things like that, um, as well as uh, projecting what might be the economic outcome going forward. And how far are you in this process? I mean, you, you can't control the political timeline, but we could have been done already. It could drag out a lot longer. Um, is the homework done? Are we, are, uh, how far are, do you feel like the IMF is into the process with the communities? Well, it's very much a collaborative process uh, with um, our other IFIs, but also with the two communities. So uh, there is, um, you know, we work in tandem and we also get feedback from them. So we have to, in a sense, um, our, our pace of progress depends also in part on how quickly they get back to us. Because this is, again, not a unilateral process. This is a dialogue. Um, and as you might expect, the Turkish Cypriot community has fewer resources in the public administration uh, to deal with this. And I must say that um, somehow our reports are very large. Uh, for example, we had one just recently on tax policy, and it was 170 pages. So um, it, it's a, that's just one report. So there's a lot to digest. Um, and so it, it does take time. And there's no point moving faster than the two sides can absorb uh, the work. So I, I want to come back to some of those issues, Rachel, but let me pick up David because I'm concerned about the real world of how you actually get the private sector moving, growth and jobs developing. And I can see, I can understand and hear um, the challenges of absorbing what's coming out of the IMF, but we've got to have reality on the ground. We've got to paint a picture uh, and, and see that there are going to be some opportunities. So. Um, let me ask David, coming from the, the, the private sector, um, what would you like to see from a unified Cyprus in order to help inject investment uh, into the country? Um, what's going to move international capital in what is uh, a, a fairly turbulent region, uncertain politics, and a relatively small market? Yeah. Um, you know, I've, we've been invested in Cyprus since 2013 when we became the largest shareholder of Hellenic Bank. It's the second largest bank on the island. Uh, we, in fact, were the first foreign direct capital into the island following the bail-in. Uh, when we invested, we actually had no real technical way to ever get our money out. Um, the country has said, yeah, so uh, tend to be a bit adventurous. Um, and, uh, you know, that's actually, you know, our, that support has been well received uh, on the island and remembered. Um, and I think, you know, what, what one of the challenges for Cyprus right now is it does have a very attractive profile for international capital, but it has a dearth of investable assets. And so when you look at kind of you know, where you could go put money in Cyprus today, the truth is there's a handful of large projects, maybe two or three, a couple marinas and a casino project. Otherwise, the main asset that is going to be for sale on the island uh, are NPLs. And that's not a business model you want to sustain as a country. And eventually those hopefully go away. Where capital will be most interested, again, are the larger viable projects that have specific use and economic benefit that create economic value. And so, you know, a 
then the tourism money will follow, et cetera. But when it comes to energy and infrastructure that need to be put in place in a reunified island, uh, there will certainly be capital available for that. Um, if you just look at kind of the Cypriot, Greek Cypriot side and the banking system, still 400% banking assets to GDP. The island has always had excess capital. That's why they invested in Greek government bonds prior to the haircut there, which led to the bailout of the banks in Cyprus. There still is excess capital. Hellenic Bank, for example, currently sits on $3 billion of cash deposited with the ECB at negative 40 bips because we cannot find enough good local projects to invest in. $3 billion goes a long way to building airports and roads and highways on a reunified island. And we're just the second largest bank on the island. And we're you know, a distant second at that. And so it's, it, it, capital tends to have momentum. And right now with Cyprus, you kind of absorbed the investable assets, two marinas, two banks, and a casino. And it's kind of, you know, there are smaller assets out there available. There's land plots that are, you know, had been repossessed. They are actually beginning to trade. Those values are pretty good. But for deeper pools of capital, there need to be more viable projects on a more consistent schedule uh, that come along. People have to make a good return on their money. And that's how you get the flywheel kind of going. And at this point, outside of the MPL space, which again is not a viable, healthy basis for an economy, there aren't a lot of really good or sizable assets on offer on the island for institutional capital at this point. And I want to ask you, but then um, uh, turn to John, how do you get momentum in the flywheel? How do you start the flywheel? What, what's going to actually start moving things that will begin to, to make Reunification your... goes a long way uh, and is the most identifiable impetus to creating that flywheel. Um, alone. Um, obviously, the north isn't really an investable destination for Western capital today. Uh, on the south, we're pitching services and high quality of, uh, of resources and highly educated labor. All that's true. Uh, I see you know, some of the most talented people I've ever worked with work you know, on the island, extremely intelligent, well-educated people. The services are great, um, but that's not enough to get foreign capital into the island, having great accountants, lawyers, um, tax regimes and weather. It's got to be more than just that if you want to get billions onto the island. Um, and so it's, there's got to be reunification is the clearest path forward because it provides the identifiable, viable opportunities. So that's sort of the message we've been looking at, that this is uh, you know, not just a, this is a, a particular time and a particular opportunity. How do you maximize the opportunity that comes from what well, might happen? on the political side. So let me bring in John to sort of connect what Rachel and, and David have said. I mean, we're doing this in part during the State Department's Global Partnerships Week because John has been working and thinking a little bit and has some experience seeing some failures and has been working on what's the right model of success um, that doesn't just depend on governments and the financial institutions, but how do you do something that catalyzes sustainable private sector-led growth that delivers good jobs for people on the ground um, and give us a little bit of your perspective from what you've seen not work and how to actually craft something from on the private sector side that could work here. Well, first off, I do not want to compare Cyprus with any other country that I might mention in this statement because uh, we can't do that. Right. It, it, they're completely different models. Um, I spent quite a bit of time in the Balkans, um, Ukraine, uh, northern Iraq, and Vietnam. and. What I see is no plan. So what happens is we have a lot of politicians, we have government institutions that go in and promise a lot of things. But 
frankly, they are public servants, bureaucrats. They've never been in the private sector before. So when you enter into a country, say like Kosovo, where billions of dollars were pumped in to try to turn this into a self-sustainable country, and I probably set foot there probably about 10 or 11 years ago, and as an American citizen trying to bring foreign direct investment there, building teams to help build infrastructure, there was absolutely no plan. So you walk in, it's a complete wild, wild west. Uh, people are coming from everywhere and there's just money being put in. Well, that creates two major problems. One, as I said, no plan. Second, corruption. So when you go in, um, you have certain agencies, institutions that are putting money into things, but there is no leverage behind it. So simply representing U.S. companies uh, to go in there uh, with the U.S. State Department that was heavily behind that, uh, as well as Turkey, this is actually a good example. Uh, the U.S. put a lot of effort with Turkey into a uh, self-sustainable country, but there were no U.S. companies going in afterwards. Uh, Turkey took advantage of that, which was very smart. Uh, Turkish companies went in rapidly, helped rebuild things. So. I saw this systematically happening in every country that I went into. About three and a half, four years ago, when I started to notice that Cyprus had a real potential, uh, not only about the island, but the political process, I wanted to make it very clear to get in, and I started to come uh, to the US, I started to meet with Rachel and some others, and really point out that we'll leave the politics up to you, but you really gotta get the private sector involved, because I'm a firm believer that why are the government agencies paying for that? I don't even believe really in development aid. I'm not going to say 100% of it, but really development aid creates a lot of problems. What I want to see is the private sector going in. We need technical experts to come together and someone needs to build a roadmap. Someone needs to go in and say, when day one happens, when you asked her what happens after, I'm, I'm telling you what needs to happen before. So what we need to do, what the, the whole purpose of forming One Cyprus Now, which is a US-based, is simply to create an alliance for FDI. We want to gather technical experts from all over, from the region. We want to get them from Turkey. We want to get them from the European Union. We want to get them UK, US. Uh, there's a lot of uh, Egyptian influence, Israeli influence. I mean, this is a dynamic uh, area, thousands of years of history uh, being one of the biggest trade uh, uh, states in, in, in the region, in the Mediterranean. So in order for that to be successful, in my view, you've got to get the private sector to lead that. They should pay for that. And the public sector should stick to the negotiations to make sure that there's strong institutions, that there's transparent decision making, uh, that we have policies inset to protect economy and foreign direct investment. Uh, we can, I'm, I'm sure David will agree with me, if when those are in place and there is a roadmap, you will see a huge interest of the private sector wanting to enter. Who does not want to enter a fast-growing economy? And uh, Cyprus, not only does, you know, it's mentioned many times, they're highly educated, they speak very strong English on both sides. Uh, they're very driven people. I, I have a great time going there talking with business with them. They have a lot of ideas. The problem is, is there's no, there's nothing there for them to really look forward to. You know, we, they get into discussions about gas, but gas takes a long time to start getting into the economy. Uh, they talk about, if you look at what's going on compared to the south and the north, there's really nothing for sale. We don't see any real big privatizations. So how do you kickstart that? Well, you kickstart that by getting this roadmap together, getting the technical experts together, and start focusing from the ground up. 
and it has to be local, right? This is not a US-led mission to go in and take advantage of the economy. No, this is a Cypriot-led uh, project with local partners bringing in foreign groups to help build and to help uh, invest within the country itself. So I want to pick up on this because I do think that this is sort of key. That, I mean, if you get to the opportunity of settlement, this is the moment. I mean, you don't, right. you don't go through the many opportunities when you get to make your case and have the attention of the international community to be catalytic on the private sector side. So maybe, Rachel, come back and react to what you've heard with the private sector perspective of sort of the public role, the private role. And where, do you, um, where does the IMF assess sort of the, where are the strengths and the weaknesses in terms of economic governance that you're sort of analyzing on the island to build the framework that, that these two gentlemen have sort of described they, they want? So definitely the role of the public sector is to make an environment that's conducive to sustainable private sector development. Uh, that, is, that is the key thing. And um, you know, establishing a roadmap for future investment would be an important element of that. Uh, also, it could help avoid this problem that uh, uh, both the other speakers mentioned, which was um, there is a lot of money waiting in the wings. Uh, and uh, there is a risk that on day one, money comes flooding in. It is used inefficiently uh, it, um, beyond the, and the amount is beyond uh, the absorption capacity of the economy, and it leads to overheating and loss of competitiveness. So having a, a clear plan, I think, is, is really important. Um, and that is, frankly, the role for, uh, for a public, the public administration to do. In terms of the strengths and weaknesses, um, I think that, um, you know, obviously in the, in the South, the economy is much more advanced uh, in, in many respects. Uh, its institutions are much stronger. Uh, but nonetheless, there are still non uh, weaknesses. I think um, the uh, World Competitiveness Report um, identifies Cyprus as um, you know, a middle-ranked country in terms of uh, competitiveness, and that has, of course, implications. Um, the, uh, the Turkish Cypriot Chamber of Commerce uh, rep uh, replicates that same analysis for the North, and they find, with the, actually the US um, assistance of the US uh, government, and they find that they are ranked like number 114th in the world. So I think on, on there's a lot of catch up that could be done on both sides to get the situation right. And I think we should not lose sight of the fact that on both sides of the island, within the past decade, there has been a, uh, issues with misallocation of resources that have led to boom-bust cycles. And this is something that we certainly want to avoid next time. And uh, um, in increasing capacity of the public sector, um, having f uh, um, you know, a tax system that, uh, that rewards um, uh, and, and treats income equally across the board, uh, I think it's is very important to set these incentives correctly. So, so uh, let me just ask, uh, sort of devil's advocate, if, if, um, if Espen succeeds uh, with Mr. Nami, Ambassador Mavrianis, um, and we're not quite sure there's clarity of a plan. You've got some questions about capacity. Um, 
is it is it naive to think about sort of a catalytic moment on the private sector side? Is there a danger of overselling the opportunity, overselling the promise? Because this has to translate into how the the people on the island see the costs and benefits of what's coming in the wake of a settlement. I think the most powerful driver of of what would happen in the period going ahead is income convergence. Um, so in the uh, per capita income in the, in the north is considerably uh, below the level in the south. And uh, convergence would no doubt uh, take place at a, you know, probably a fairly rapid clip um, over the next few years. I mean, there may be some short run dip that, uh, that may happen because of disruptions in, in the um, resource reallocation, whatever. But income convergence would move forward. Now, would it be complete? Um, that's very difficult to say. Many countries get stuck in what's called the middle income trap. They begin to grow very quickly, and then it peters out. And the best correlation between countries that get stuck and those that uh, versus those that move ahead is indeed these things that I was mentioning about the quality of public institutions. And so, um, again, this goes back to uh, what is done today, the preparatory work before settlement and uh, referendum and then reunification is crucial mm -hmm. to make sure that growth is sustainable. It's not a matter of whether growth will take off, but will it be sustained over the longer term? Right, so, uh, so uh, uh, David, you mentioned that the settlement itself would be the biggest impetus. And yet, you you have four only four places where you can figure out where to put your capital on the island right now. Um, so, what sectors are going to be unlocked by a settlement? Where do you anticipate being able to start putting that capital? Um, what's the what's where is the greatest potential for growth? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to end up being energy, infrastructure, and tourism. Um, we've discussed a lot about energy up here today. Um, you know, the Israeli project, for example, just becomes significantly more viable with a unified state. Right now, Israel believes that they can do it without it, and they're showing maps, you know, they're actively road showing for the next tender round with an individual pipe to Turkey, an individual type pipe to Cyprus, and an individual pipe to uh, Egypt. Now, Egypt wouldn't be in that mix, um, but it, it just did, like, you know, was explained before, it's expensive gas, you can't have expensive transport, and then it's expensive to put pipes six feet, you know, 6,000 feet under the ocean. So. Um, reunification would not just unlock the local uh, energy assets, which could be better exploited for the benefit of the entire island and also in cooperation with Turkey. Um, it can also, let's just say there isn't any viable gas there. It's a possibility. Uh, Cyprus as an island itself still needs to get off of its current energy supply. It's much too heavily dependent uh, on you know dirtier sources. It will not be in compliance with EU mandated um, you know, percentages of clean energy going forward, it needs gas, period. Um, and so the reunified island could definitely enable either its own gas to be more uh, efficiently, you know, and economically dispersed to Europe or, you know, further improve the economics of the Israeli projects because there is proven gas there. Um, and, uh, you know, improve those economics to the point where you can get gas uh, to Cyprus and get energy costs down. Tourism obviously has been a boom, you know, in the last couple of years. I think right now, you know, it's up 20% last year. I think, you know, 3.1 million visitors. The southern portion of the island is maxed out on arrival capacity in effect. Um, there still, frankly, isn't 
uh, as much higher quality uh, assets available for tourists uh, as there are in just say Greece. Um, and you know the north uh, depends on who you ask, but maybe they've got the better beaches. And so um, there, are, uh, there are definitely opportunities there, um, particularly if you just look at Greece and Cyprus right now, the most bankable part of either of those economies is tourism. Tourism is booming. It's just given the geopolitical instability in the general region. That's why you're getting all of these tourists, right? People aren't vacationing in Egypt anymore, mm -hmm. um, but they are vacationing in Cyprus uh, and Greece. And you know, we, we find it at the bank extremely competitive. Any viable, reasonable tourism project will be able to get a loan easy in mm -hmm. Cyprus. It's the same thing in Greece, even with banks that are 60% MPLs. We're willing to fund viable tourism projects. And can you say a little bit more just for us about the banking sector? Because it's gone through a pretty dramatic <laughs> and traumatic uh, couple of years. Um, there's also been questions about uh, the banking sector, the scrutiny coming from uh, European regulators, uh, uh, a lot of offshore uh, Russian financing. A lot of that's evolved and changed over the past couple of years. Give us, a, give us your take on the assessment of the. Yeah, and I've seen the, um, the sausage making up close and impersonal. Yeah, I do sure. think, um, one, there was an excessively negative um, perception of the Cypriot banking system going into the crisis. Yes, I mean, you had an economy that was exploding at the seams almost, you know, I think, you know, going into the crisis, there was way too much money on the island. Um, but it has been significantly cleaned up. I mean, I think number two in the IMF, you know, Troika uh, MOU was AML uh, clean up of the banking system. I can tell you from our own business, we've spent considerable amounts of money, millions of dollars, uh, bringing in you know Western uh, consultancy firms, going through every single account, putting out you know certain types of transactions no longer viable. We are the gold standard, and it's still hard to get correspondent banks to come to the island. I mean, there's right. really only a few left. That is changing because when people come in, and they say, "Oh my God, that's that's Cyprus." You're like, yes, that's Cyprus. And what I think is actually pretty unique about the current ecosystem in the banking sector is you have the two largest banks on the island, which have been recapitalized and restructured uh, with significant influence from Western American capital. Between ourselves, uh, W.R. Ross, um, we are either the largest or the second largest shareholder of the two largest banks in Cyprus, have been for years, and we've spent considerable time and effort restructuring the businesses, just you know, not just from an operational perspective or MPLs, but from compliance, AML. Uh, those have been huge focuses for us because they're actually also the most profitable parts of our businesses. And so what we need to be able to do is clean those up where they can accept viable dollars. And we've done that. And now get you know, those transactions back and grow those businesses and get additional correspondent banks onto the island. But I think if anyone goes in and takes a hard look at what a Cypriot bank is today, at least the larger ones, uh, gold plate Western standards, in so, my opinion. So I wanted to put you on the spot. You, you want to speak to that? Um, related to that, I just wanted to say that um, I think for these some of these large investment projects, there is uh, clearly going to be uh, ready-made external financing. Mm. Um, I think the challenge really is to spread the benefits locally. And if, um, if the banks are not in a position to provide new lending, I think it's much harder then for the benefits of this uh, large foreign investment to trickle through to the economy. And uh, 
So the, um, certainly a lot has changed on the, on the banks in the, in the south. Uh, the situation has stabilized. Non-performing loans do remain extremely large, uh, which is probably going to limit their um, ability to, to lend um, um, more generally through the economy. Perhaps tourism is, is, uh, uh, has no trouble getting funding. But certainly a healthy banking sector is important to distribute the benefits through the economy. And um, going back to the point that people don't eat flags, um, this will be uh, a crucial way through which the benefits from this offshore investment in oil and gas, tourism, other large projects do feed through to, the, to everyone. So let me connect this back to John, because we've talked a little bit about how you bring this down to a practical level for people, individual, at the end of the day, individual voters and folks that are looking for jobs and painting this story of what this all translates into. It's kind of abstract and uncertain right now. Right. Um, what, what, how, do, how do you see this translating for uh, the average uh, uh, voter on the island and they're gonna think about what this is gonna mean for them? Well, um, let's start with, unfortunately, uh, when you go on the island, uh, nobody is uh, informed about the benefits of this. Um, I, I go there and speak with from a taxi driver to wealthy landowner, business owners, um, stay-at-home moms, and um, they don't understand the benefits of uh, the island. And as a Cypriot ambassador, when I met with him, he made a very good point. You know, it's um, people don't vote for the unknown. So this is something that's very important for us. Um, you know, our, our plan is to be able to uh, get an internationally committed. Uh, PR uh, to be able to go back on the island, help inform uh, the benefits of local driven businesses. Um, David and I speak quite regularly. Um, I, I'm a, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not as confident as Espen, <laughs> but, but I'm confident that uh, the potential of Cyprus as a united Cyprus um, could be the Singapore of the Mediterranean. And so if you look at the, uh, the history of how Singapore uh, by Lee Kuan Yew and what he had to go through. Now, we have two languages, at least they speak a common language of English. I mean, he had five uh, that he had to deal with. Um, but the things that he looked at were um, big banks uh, merging with the local banks, uh, bringing uh, international fund man managers, talent, um, adding more international competition uh, for the local group, uh, groups and companies in order to upgrade their services. And so with the banking system, uh, the North, uh, as we said, is uh, the South has had a, a, a privilege. They were quite well established already, but they had a privilege of uh, having EU regulations. So they're, they're almost fully up to speed. Um, the North will have to integrate with the South on that, I think. Um, there's a lot of uh, the two banks, as he said, um, both of them happen to be the, the largest uh, shareholders are uh, U.S. citizens. I think those are great um, opportunities for the banks to start to work together, uh, for the southern banks to help finance projects in the north, uh, to merge or acquire the banks in the north. I mean, these are the things that people have to understand from day one. I always say if, if there's going to be um, a settlement, then the f next morning, FDI has to start arriving on the boat. People have to be there and be prepared. 
And um, otherwise, we're going to see a lot of chaos, uh, which I happen to see a lot in, in the Balkans happen. Um, so I, I just think that if we can motivate the younger generation, there's a very large young diaspora, uh, mostly in the US and the UK, but in other countries as well. Um, these people are getting highly educated. Uh, they're working internationally. Uh, what's amazing for me on both sides is there are a lot of international businessmen. They work on a global level. Again, this is thousands of years of history of this island has done that. Um, we have to send a message to motivate that youth to come back and start implementing ideas, uh, innovations, working with global markets uh, to push the economy. I mean, we, we can sit and talk about economic drivers, but it's what you do with them, right? Uh, of course, infrastructure, and oil and gas, everybody knows that. Infrastructure, of course, we have to, you have to connect the roads, the water lines, the electricity grids, the telephone lines, and so on. Great. You know, that helps a lot of local companies in the economy as well. But what you need is you need to start with the basics. You need to look at how real estate development is going to happen, how young uh, businesses are going to start up, who's going to help finance those, who are going to drive that. So these are the things that really have to be put into place uh, from day one, or actually today, but to be put into effect on day one. Terrific. We got a little bit of a late start, but I want to try to keep us on time. I want to turn to the audience to take some comments, questions, uh, reactions to what you're hearing. And I might take the liberty to put one of my colleagues, David Karani, uh, on the spot, if I may, because you've spent so much time uh, uh, working in the region on the island on the offshore resources issue. So how do you see, uh, if you don't mind me putting you on the spot, um, how do you see the prospect of a settlement in impacting the whole energy mix as a potential driver of the economy? And then others catch my eye and we'll bring in other comments <laughs> questions. I would just echo what David said about uh, managing expectations and, and keeping it realistic. And I think what's, what's critically important in the energy context is to recognize, first of all, that the size of the resource base, at least when it comes to Cyprus, is not huge so far. There might be further discoveries down the line, but what we are talking about so far is Aphrodite, which is 125 BCM, so that's not huge. Uh, I think the second key piece is that we have to look at the domestic usage first, and that's critically important in the context of Cyprus paying the, the highest prices of electricity in the European Union, and their portfolio is, is not very clean. Is that so right? how, do you, how do you utilize those resources in a domestic context, and how do you uh, utilize those resources to fuel uh, the economy of the unified island going forward? And I think that the third piece is to be realistic about uh, the regional and global context and the demand for these resources going forward and, and what are the uh, economically viable and feasible export routes if indeed there will be more resources to be found further down the line. And that's in my mind Turkey and, and onwards to the European markets. If you, if you look at the, the global context and how LNG markets are shaping up, uh, well, there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of how demand is going to look like 10 years from now. Nobody can really tell that, but what's really certain is that Europe is going to need a lot more gas as its indigenous <coughs> gas resources are, are uh, uh, dwindling down. So I would certainly look at the, the, the regional export markets first and the Turkish market in particular, and then uh, onwards from Turkey to the European markets. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Any reaction to David's comments? And I'll, I want to bring in some other others' comments, questions, please. Please. Let me take uh, uh, Cohen and please, two of you. Go ahead, John. A question about Verosha. 
how much would it cost to rehabilitate that city? And is that an attractive investment when you think about not just the, the tourism, but the supporting infrastructure, businesses, rehabilitating a place that hasn't been occupied for 40 years? Pretty extraordinary place. Well, um, I would not be able to answer how much it costs because uh, clearly in the private sector we come up with an analysis and we're always wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> I would rather just wait until we can put a proper analysis together. But I can tell you, um, I feel that that is probably the most important starting point. This is a, a city that's um, fairly new, let's say 50s and 60s. Um, in order to build an international community to go in to help rebuild and set up, I think that is a perfect start, starting point. Um, it's, a, it's actually one of the, besides Nicosia and, and the, within the buffer zone, uh, but it, it is one of the areas where true um, cooperation and integration can happen. Um, not only between the two, but uh, bringing in, uh, there's Israeli interest into uh, Farusha. Uh, I think that any uh, contractor, uh, anybody within logistics, uh, if how we're going to look at how the, if the port is going to go through, what's going to happen with that. There's a lot of questions in the political sphere as well, but let's just assume that it goes in the way we want it. <laughs> um, I think that's going to uh, be a true international integrated city for the island. Can I, this has to have been a focus of, of the financial planning among the financial institutions. And um, I don't think that we looked explicitly, or others have yet looked explicitly, at costing uh, the Verosha reconstruction. But I would just add there that there is great symbolism in, in working on this. Um, and I think that that would be an important flagship project um, as a symbolic uh, gesture and making sure that it succeeds, I think, would, would open the door to other projects too. Yeah, I, I'd just comment on that. I mean, I don't know who's been a Limassol in the last six months, but it's like Miami, mm -hmm. right? And so you just have one embedded community that loves that spot, Russia, and they've been gone, now they're back, and it didn't take long, and it is gorgeous. And the amount of money and that's going vertical in Limassol right now is absolutely insane with the most beautiful buildings you've ever seen. Farmagusta would find private money. It would find private money easy. Hmm. Interesting. So let me pick up a couple of comments here and then one in the back as well, two in the back. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm just throwing this question to the floor. Um, <laughs> in the absence of foreign investment in the Turkish Sea side. Say one more time, I didn't quite catch that. Uh, sorry? Uh, just repeat that, please. Uh, okay. I think so, yes. Yes. Okay. So I'm just throwing the question to the floor. Um, in the absence of foreign investment in the Turkey Cypriot side, one of the sectors that we develop to generate income is higher, higher education universities. So how do you think that investment will do after a settlement? Because it's a huge investment. Mm -hmm. And then uh, there were, I think, uh, this woman in the back? Why don't I pick up just a couple? Hello. So there was some talk about privatizations. Um, like historically in Cyprus, the left has been quite influential and their policies are long-standing and they're completely against privatizations. And it seems that they have a quite substantial amount of support from both South and North. So how do you plan to deal with this? Very good question. I'll pick up our colleague here. Yes, my question is on the floor. Uh, 
as well. Uh, the the speakers um, shared their views about the investment opportunities after the settlement. My question is, how can we finance the settlement? Uh, are there any ideas uh, about burden sharing? Uh, because especially uh, in the chapter of properties, uh, we will need a huge amount of uh, uh, participation, I mean, cooperation from the international community. So my question is how, I mean, did you have any um, preparations for financing the settlement? Why don't you pick up the elements of those three questions that okay. resonate with you, and then we'll come back to take a couple final Do you want me to go through the three and then let them do the same thing, or go back and forth? How do you want to? <laughs> which, which uh, I mean, no. I, pick, pick the one that most is relevant to what okay. you're working on right now, I'd say, from well, privatizations to I mean, uh, I, the thing is, is that um, these three questions are things that uh, we've been working on for quite a while. So um, I'll just make take some points. Take I'll just make some yeah. points with it. Um, uh, we'll start with the education. Um, it's correct. Very highly educated people. Um, I think what's important, the next step for the education within the North is to start linking with international universities, creating exchange programs, bringing researchers. One of the major things that's going to happen, I feel, is when you start looking into public works, you're going to want to bring in international bodies that are linked with universities. So for example, I come from the state of Texas. Uh, I speak with the state university system on a regular basis in order to be able to bring, there, there's quite a few schools within Texas that are very strong with public works. Bring them in to work directly with the Turkish universities, create programs, have exchange students. Students are able to go into the state school system within Texas, as well as Texan students being able to come and do research, being able to apply um, practices and to help operate. Um, that's what I'll say with that. On the privatizations, um, look, this is a, I think what, if I'm not mistaken, her question is more about are foreign uh, groups looking, or international groups, let's say, looking at that as that the island is for sale because I don't believe that at all. Um, I, I strictly work with groups that uh, come in and help fund projects and finance projects and work with local teams. So if we're going to work, if there's going to be a privatization, uh, it would be an international group working with the local group. Um, but I personally don't see anyone that I uh, speak with on a regular basis, I, don't, I really don't see a, a very large privatization happening, which, which would be in their interest. Um, and then if we're looking at the land issues, we can only talk about uh, ideas. Um, I share an idea with a few people uh, of one thing that can be done. But I mean, again, it's, it's, it's difficult because it's a sensitive issue. It's sometimes controversial. Uh, but I think uh, there are some ideas and methods that can be applied looking at how we can create a type of uh, sovereign fund, a type of land sovereign fund, to be able to um, put that up, the land itself, and allow uh, people to receive a type of equity uh, for exchange of the rights. 
And within that, those land uh, issues, you're able to create uh, real estate development, which is one of our goals is to be able to build a, sh a private equity um, fund strictly for land issues mm. in order to rebuild. So if you have uh, viable agricultural, uh, you know, the agriculture needs to be revamped. Uh, there's going to be new shopping centers, new um, building developments, uh, residential developments, and so on. And um, since we're speaking of integration and post-settlement, well, then that needs to be shared. Um, and so that's, those are the things we're planning right now to look at that. And um, I'd be happy to answer more of that, but I want to give them a chance to... I'd just comment quickly on privatizations are not a major part of the island. I mean, right. basically, there weren't many there to begin with. The only one that's left in the south would be CETA. It doesn't even matter. Um, this isn't Greece when it comes to privatizations. The port's done. In the south, there's nothing left of value right. for them to sell other than CETA, and they don't want to sell it, and it's fine. It's just one cell phone company. Anything to add, Rachel? Um, well, just a couple of things. On the higher education front, um, I think that uh, it's, it's quite commendable that um, in the north, although the economy was fairly internationally um, isolated, they managed to find this very important niche, uh, mm -hmm. which is higher education. I think that this is an important testament to their um, flexibility and their business acumen. And I think this speaks very highly for the future of what, um, what, the, uh, what the cooperation could be also with the South. Um, in terms of how to finance the settlement, just echoing uh, what John mentioned, um, there um, numerous possibilities related to uh, financial, various financial vehicles. But I would again urge that, you know, the, the focus should really be on bringing forth growth um, and because that is the biggest compensation that people will get from, from reunification. It is not the compensation for, for land and, and, and past, uh, past issues. On privatization, yes, I, I agree um, that there's nothing that's very large from an international perspective, but Cyprus, even in the south, is fairly small, and they do have fairly high debt, public debt, and uh, so a few more privatizations uh, uh, would be would be commendable. Interesting, interesting. So we're going to uh, wrap up with the last couple of questions, please. Here, this woman here, and then we'll sh close down with that. So please. Hello, hi. My name is Mike Messenger, and I'm co-founder of a bi-communal business accelerator in Cyprus, and I just wanted to get your reaction. Um, you know, our, our, our company helps existing businesses when they want to expand from the north to the south or vice versa, which is a little trickier. Um, but I wanted to get your sense of day one settlement certainly would make things easier for, for us, um, but if you thought that it would be a competitive advantage for companies that can demonstrate by communal Workers, right. experience, marketing, and um, you know, to what extent you could s support those efforts, because it kind of really gets down to trust and making viable business operations. Terrific, very interesting. Uh, please, this woman in the back, please. Yeah. Um, we've been talking a lot about uh, natural gas um, and the energy needs of, of Cyprus. Really, it only rains about five days a year in Cyprus. Wouldn't um, solar wow, energy <laughs> um, be the 
the logical and most rational thing for right. energy independence for the island and development of technologies um, for the solar industry because you'd be able to test everything every day. Right. <laughs> Terrific. Thank you. And the final question in the back, please. Hi. I'd just like to thank the last lady for asking pretty much the same question. I'd like to rephrase it slightly. Um, <laughs> there's been a lot of talk of uh, concreting over real estate, concreting over Cyprus to build real estate. Anyone who's been there recently will know that there's empty shops, empty apartment blocks everywhere. Um, so I don't really see the business case necessarily for that. But the real case is why are we talking about hydrocarbons when you can get energy out of the sun for a far lower cost per watt, surely? I just want to know, as investors, have you assessed that case and what did you make of it? All right, terrific. Well, let me come back and let's, uh, let's close that out. Maybe I'll start with, uh, in reverse and we'll end with, with Rachel to close this out. Yeah, sure. So uh, I, I do think there would be advantages for businesses that had uh, established the ability to operate in a bi-communal manner. Um, it'll be new. It'll be tricky. Anything that's difficult like that, uh, you know, prior experience would certainly be beneficial. Um, with regards to solar, look, I mean, there are solar projects. Um, I'd, I'd just say that, you know, you, it's at the current state of play, it's not possible to fully supply any modern economy off the basis of just solar. It's just you don't get the same amount of you know power, like literally power, as you do from hydrocarbons. Obviously, it's you know if you go drive you know through Cyprus, you notice every single home already has a solar panel roof on the top of it with a big tank. They need to figure out how to get rid of the tanks because they don't look good. But um, otherwise, you know there there are large projects. Um, I'm not familiar enough with the detail of how much solar you would need to power the island independently, but my guess is based on looking at other countries, it's, there it will always be some hydrocarbon element to you know, fueling the economy. On the bi-communal businesses, um, I think that this is very important for the social unity of the, of the island. Um, but to make that work, it would be very helpful if to the extent possible there were common uh, uh, regulations and rules, including on taxation, on business registration, many of these very mundane things that can otherwise act as uh, as dividers between the two sides and, and prevent this uh, bi-communal businesses. Terrific. A final word, please. Yeah. Um, well, I want to touch on the renewable energy and as well as, well, a couple of those things. The, the renewable energy is something that uh, we've been working on for quite a while, um, not only technology for uh, green energy, but smart cities and um, looking at viable, sustainable agriculture. One advantage is that we have to start from scratch with the island pretty much. When you start to integrate um, power uh, circuits, or not circuits, but um, uh, just, yeah, sorry, lost the word there. And when you start to rebuild agriculture, when you're starting to put in new public works, you can start at a cleaner, higher advantage. Um, if you look at um, Eastern Europe, for example, when they started to join the EU, you know some of these countries have the fastest internet. They're starting to use more cleaner energy from the start because they had to. It was cheaper. It was easier. So we're not. You don't have to go into Cyprus and then take everything down and restart. It's already starting. So I think um, when you bring the right technical experts, and that leads into the by communal. Uh, because one of the advantages of creating a roadmap now is, you know, we have to get working groups from both sides 
started now. And we need to get the business leaders and uh, students, the architects, the technicians, the technical experts from both sides put together to be able to come up with a future plan. And so you have to, if you're going to start with uh, restoration, if you're going to start with agricultural, new uh, smart cities, you just want to bring some outside technical experts, but you want them to guide it. It's the same as the political process. This has to be a separate-led um, uh, project that will start the dialogue together. Uh, another thing about empty buildings and, and, and so on, well, what happens is, is as you start to build up a country, uh, if you just want to focus on uh, being a, a, new, a newly uh, uh, logistics hub, you have companies that start to move in. If, you, if we can copy a similar model of what happened in Malta uh, in the 70s and 80s and take this low to mid-level tourism and push it up to a higher level tourism, uh, then you'll start seeing people coming in and buying up residences, people putting in shops, you'll see a real strong growth, but that also has to be done sustainable, which we have an advantage if we start now. So um, I hope that answered some of those questions, but I think it, it, it's all kind of a chicken and egg. It all works together if it's implemented right. Terrific. Thank you, John, because John's bringing us full circle about why we're here today to try to be catalytic right. in this process so that um, we aren't just all watching our uh, negotiators in play and then all of a sudden saying what, what's next, that there's a plan there. Um, uh, I'm going to invite Regina Sheridan to come up to uh, the stage just to close us out. Regina represents Concordia, um, our other partner. The reason why we're doing this during the State Department Global Partnerships Week is in part our partnership with Concordia. Um, I'm really delighted that it's hard when you talk about Cyprus to not be obsessed with the politics. It's so juicy. There's so much going on. The history is so rich. This is what we wanted to do to begin to build out. How do you begin to build the future, a positive vision for the future, and make that case in a credible way that it can lead towards opportunity and jobs? So please, close us out, Regina. Thank you. Uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this incredible and timely conversation today. Um, as you mentioned, I'm Regina Sheridan, Executive Director of Concordia. And I would like to start off by thanking our wonderful partners, uh, One Cypress Now and Atlantic Council. Since 2015, we have had the pleasure of partnering with the Atlantic Council uh, and their incredible team led by Damon Wilson and Megan Poole. We are proud to be standing alongside them this evening once again and thank them for hosting us in this wonderful event space. We are also thrilled to be collaborating with One Cypress Now, led by John Harkrider, Jeff Monk, and Kathy Jevons as our new partners this year. For those of you not familiar with Concordia, we are a global affairs platform that facilitates public-private partnerships to create a more sustainable future. We're an equal parts convener and idea incubator, and we're working to actively build cross-sector partnerships for social impact. We are here today because this week is particularly important for Concordia's mission. Each March, we co-host our annual Global Partnerships Week with the Secretary's Office of Global Partnerships at the U.S. Department of State, uh, with the U.S. Global Development Lab at USAID, and with Peace Tech Lab. During this time, we organize a series of gatherings to inspire public and private organizations to explore their potential as shared value collaborators. For 2017, Global Partnerships Week is specifically focusing on the role of partnerships in achieving the UN Sustainable Development Goals. In particular, Goal 17, Partnerships for the Goals. This framework, constructed by the UN, is the core theme and driving force behind Concordia's programming. We've carried this arc from our 2016 summit in New York last September through to our first international summit in Bogota, Colombia, which was just this past month, 
uh, to here in DC and through our European summit, which will be held in Athens in June. Through our efforts, we aim to measure progress in the private sector's role and partnerships' ability to scale impact when working towards achieving the global goals. Goal 17 is the embodiment of Concordia's beliefs, and our conversations tonight are progress towards achieving this and all the sustainable development goals as we try to galvanize support for lasting peace and growing prosperity in the region. So again, thank you for joining us, um, and I hope to continue these conversations uh, going forward. Um, and now I'll turn it back to Dana. Thank you very much, Regina. Please join me in thanking our terrific uh, discussants. This is meant to be a call of action. You've given us a roadmap. Thank you.